Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. Uh, we are starting a, a new series this week uh, called Thorny Issues. Uh, this is a crowdsourced uh, series where we asked you a few weeks ago to let us know uh, what kinds of questions get between your neighbors, your family, people you love who don't follow Jesus or don't want to be part of church. Uh, what questions get between them? What issues get between them and church and the gospel? What, what things make you feel like you can't talk to them about Jesus because you're afraid they're going to ask about this thing and you're just not sure what to tell them? What I am not promising at the outset of this is that I am going to create more comfortable conversations for you. Uh, and I am definitely not promising that you're going to walk out of here going, oh, now I know exactly what to say, and I'm going to have all the answers for people. Uh, but we are going to take these questions and some of these issues, and we're going to talk about them. Uh, we asked for uh, input from you guys, and I did not realize how good y'all are at input, so good work. We are not going to get to everything for sure uh, in the next few weeks, uh, but we are going to try to cover as much as we can. Uh, I actually want to start this morning with a question, uh, not that you submitted to us, but that I would like to submit to you. Um, and at the risk of sounding way over the top about this, I really do believe that as you dig into this question, uh, this question really could change your life and how you look at it. So here's the question. What percentage of your earthly life is supposed to feel good? And I actually want you to come up with a number. Some of you aren't numbers people, but try for me anyway. What percentage of your earthly life is supposed to feel Good. Now, for, uh, for those of you who are thinking through this theologically, and you're going back to page one of Scripture and the Garden of Eden, and like life is all supposed to feel good, that is good theology. That's not what I'm talking about. In these days that God has given you, what percentage of your earthly life is supposed to feel good? What, what should, how much should feel good? Good. If everything went the way that it feels like it should, as you look months or years down the road, if everything between now and then goes the way it's supposed to, the way it should, how much of your life is supposed to feel good? Because when things go poorly, when things are difficult, we say things like, well, that's not how it's supposed to be. We look at other people's lives on Instagram or Facebook and we go, oh, that's what it's supposed to look like. And even if we wouldn't say that out loud, there's some voice in the back of our head going, yeah, if my life was the way it was supposed to be, if I didn't keep messing things up or whatever we say, uh, it would look like that. So what percentage of your life should feel good? And then the inverse question. Let's pretend for a moment that 80% of our lives aren't boring, okay? And our options... Are, are feels good or feels difficult? What percentage of your life should, is supposed to, feel difficult? You got actual numbers? Okay, hang on to those. Uh, we live in a society that tells us in so many subtle and straightforward ways that life is only right and good if it feels right 
and good is for life to feel good. And our whole advertising system, no offense to advertisers, is built on this idea, right? Like, buy our product, we'll make you feel good, we'll make you feel better, we'll take the pain away, we'll take the hard parts away, it slices, it dices, it makes life easy, makes life feel good. Social media is designed to give you a dopamine hit that feels good and to make you believe that you should feel that dopamine as much as humanly possible. News networks invert it, <laughs> but it's the same principle. They make you feel angry that something does not feel good and that them over there are making your life difficult, making it different from how it should be. And if this is how we operate, and again, if you have been raised in the United States, and I would argue just if you've been raised in the Western world, you've been raised and conditioned to think this way. But if we operate this way, that 100% of life should feel good, then everything inconvenient or difficult is an injustice that needs to be taken down. And then we apply this to how we see God. Because my life is supposed to feel good, and because God loves me, that part is true, then he should make my life feel good. My life is supposed to be good. God loves me, so obviously he would want that for me. So he is supposed to make my life feel good. And when he doesn't, we are left frustrated and angry because God has failed us. Now, God never promises that the purpose of life is to feel good, nor does he promise that he will make life feel good for those who are extra obedient, even though sometimes we like to operate that way in churches, right? Where if I just behave in all the right ways and I do all the right things and I follow all the right rules, that God will make my life feel good. I, I was raised in a, a culture, a church culture that said, hey, look, if you follow all the right purity rules in high school, when you get to marriage, it's all good. That's what we were told. Like, I'm not quite quoting, but pretty close. And when we, we apply that to God somehow, when in fact, Jesus said to his followers in John 16, that here on earth, you will have trouble. You will have many trials and sorrows. Jesus's brother, uh, James, said this. Uh, this is James 1, verse 2. He said, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Please note that it does not say, dear brothers and sisters, if you run into trouble. No, it says, when troubles of any kind come your way. And we hear things, words like this from Jesus and James, there will be trouble when it comes your way. And we go, well, that is just depressing. That's not, that's not what I want to be about at all. 
And so then you have Christians talk about this earthly life as just one big, long misery. Well, it's just Jesus said we're going to have trouble. So I guess it's just all terrible, which I would also like to point out is not what it says. It says we have an opportunity for joy. It's a different thing. But for sure, none of it feels particularly comforting, right? Like you will have trouble. There will be trials and sorrows. None of it matches the sense that we have that the world is in some way broken and it shouldn't be this hurtful. And we run into some really significant pain and some really hard questions. Questions that were submitted to us, questions like these, these are either quotes or summaries of what was turned in. Questions like, if God is good, why do bad things happen? If God is good, why do evil things happen? Why does sickness, why does loss, why does hurt happen? And then it's, I think, harder to wrestle with cousin. Why does God stop some evil, but not others? Why would God heal that person, but not this one? Why would God stop this tragedy, but not that one? If God is good, why do bad things happen and why? Does God seem to stop some things, but he doesn't stop others? In this series, we want to handle the hard questions and hard topics that poke us and prod us and make us want to retreat to the safety of simple, simplified answers and maybe even ignorance. I'm going to make every effort to not give pat simplified answers and to help us think deeply about these things while understanding that there are limits of this format and time constraints. These questions and issues are not things that we can just apply an easy statement like, well, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Because our experiences of these things leave us feeling very unsettled. And so we have to walk into the, I suppose, danger zone of these questions, the hard emotions, the big doubts, the difficult questions. And we walk into these things and patiently and graciously work through them with each other. Now, there are some things that I'm going to assume to be true because we are a church and we're committed to following Jesus together, but maybe not as many things as you think. We'll get to one of those in a moment. But if that's not you, if, if you're here or you're watching this somehow and you would say, I'm, I'm not following Jesus with my life, actually. My hope is that you will at least find these questions worth pondering. The plan is that, that you'll find this exploration to be questions worth asking. And, and my hope, I suppose, is that you'll find them 
compelling questions to ask and maybe even compelling answers. So to approach these two questions, if God is good, why does evil happen? And why does God stop some evil and not others? I actually want to take us all the way back to the most basic question we could have in this category. And we'll start there. Is there a God? Is there a God? I mean, that is the first question we have to ask. Because if there is not, uh, then the rest of this question doesn't really matter. Uh, I would rather, we're going to go through a whole series of questions today, and I would rather ask these questions uh, sitting across a, a table from you and let you answer them for yourself rather than me answering them for you. Again, some limits of the format. And a couple of things that we're just going to assume so we can get to the question, and this is one of them. We're going to say, yes, there is a God. It's, it's sort of assumed in the question. But I want to take us all the way back to the beginning because I just want to acknowledge that these really difficult questions, sometimes this is the place where people just get off the train here and just go, okay, well, as I reverse engineer this, I just get all the way. If I start with the evil things and try to work my way back through God, I, I just land in a place where I say no because it's, it's an easier way to answer the question makes more sense to me, seems more logical to my brain, whatever it may be. For this morning, we're going to assume, yes, there is a God, which leads us to question two. If there is a God, did God create the world we live in? And I, I'm not going to dive into a whole creation sermon here at all. I just want to ask the question, did God create the complexity of life that is around us and is us? Or is there a deity out there? Because again, we've assumed there is a God. Is there a deity out there who just sat back and watched atoms collide and the world develop? And the reason why this is an important question to get to our other ones is because if God did not create, if there is not a divine creator of the world around us, then we have no reason to believe that the world would work in any sort of way, and certainly not in any way that bends toward goodness. That any topic of goodness at that point, a conversation of, of goodness in the world would have to be a question of how well are humans overcoming what their atoms are designed to do. So if, if we're going to say, if God is good, why do bad things happen? If we're going to assume in that way that the, the world ha should have a, uh, a logical, consequential way about it, then, then we have to say yes. So again, I'm, I'm going to assume the answer for us this morning is, is yes. It's a necessary truth to even get at our question to expect the world to work in a certain way beyond just the random consequences of atomic movement. So now we have to stop and ask a really significant character question. Is God good? Which is sort of at the heart of these questions. It's sort of implied in the questions. 
if God is good, sort of assumed in the way the question is asked, if God is good, uh, we have inherited a lot of thought in our society from Greco-Roman philosophy. For instance, the idea that we have a soul, whatever that means, that then is separated from us after, that's the eternal part of us. That, uh, that's not biblical, that's Plato. Not the, not the doughy stuff, like the philosopher guy. <laughs> T, Plato. Anyway, that's Greco-Roman philosophy. We've inherited a lot of our thoughts that we don't even realize from that branch of thinking and pondering the world. This idea that God is good is not one of them. This is a very Christianity-influenced idea, assumption, implication, that God would be good. If you've learned anything about Greco-Roman gods, counting on them to be good, I mean, I don't care if you remember seventh grade history class, you read Percy Jackson, like you cannot count on them to be good. This idea that God is, is good is, is a Christian-influenced assumption in our world. Now, many Christians and Muslims and Jews, etc., believe that God is just, that there is a justice element to God. But when we say good, we seem to mean a lot more than just just or, or even fair. But there seems to be some idea of kindness involved. That, that God would be working in some way for our good. So in order to answer our question, we're also going to assume what the question implies, that God is good. Now, for the record, this is also what the Christian and Jewish scriptures teach explicitly. God describes himself that way in Exodus 34, 6, that we read a couple weeks ago. The Psalms are full of verses of God's goodness. Uh, and the prophet Nahum said this, and um, if you did not have Nahum on your Bible quote bingo card this morning, um, you are not alone. Um, and if I didn't have it marked, I would have to sing the, the books of the Bible song to remember where to find it. He's one of the, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Anyway, eventually you get to Nahum. He's near the end of the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. And in the midst of a whole lot of other important things, he says this in Nahum 1, verse 7. The Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust in him. So we have a God who is creator. We have a God who is good. These are the questions we've answered so far. And, and when we say good, again, we're not really saying more good than bad. We're saying like purely good. Not just like 51%. But like, God is, God is really good. I think we can logically assume then that if God created and God is wholly, fully good, A plus B would equal God created a good, a purely good world. Because what he produces is goodness. But now, now we have a problem. 
because the world that we experience every day does not feel good all the time. So we have, I think, two primary options, and you may think of a third one, but I have the microphone. So there's two primary options here. One is that we change our definition of good. And these horrible, painful things that happen to us, we just have to go, nope, nope, it's good. That's, that's uh, yep, that, that hurt a lot. But no, it's good, because everything's good. Which we sometimes, I think, try to do or try to convince other people that we're doing. Nope, everything happens for a reason. It's all good. That's one option. The other option is to have some sort of explanation for why God's world that was created so good now feels so disjointed and painful. And while I think our definition of good is definitely worth exploring, in the first pages of Scripture, the Bible gives an explanation to us. So, story time. Genesis chapter 2. Uh, God, has, uh, God creates a uh, human man, um, and he sticks him in an idyllic garden. Okay, this is the second creation account in Scripture, Genesis chapter 2. God creates a human man. He sticks him in this idyllic garden. And here's what we read. This is Genesis 2, starting in verse 15. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. And then the next few verses talk about God understanding uh, the problem of loneliness. And it's not good for man to be alone. And so um, he gives, um, he, he makes animals and gives the man a vocation. Uh, he gives him something to do, uh, animals to subdue and rule over and, and all, of, uh, all of those things. And then it turns out that a job alone is not enough to make us not feel lonely. And so he makes woman. And then uh, there they are, male and female, created in the image of God. Uh, and it says that, that uh, the two of them were naked and they felt no shame. And that's the end of chapter two. So moving on to chapter three, verse one. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die serpent said to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil, essentially saying, oh, no, no, God's just holding out on you. Verse six, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Shame has entered the picture because sin has entered the picture, entered into 
creation, this curse called sin. The English word sin just means missing the mark. Whatever the bullseye is, you have, you've missed. But then sin is also used to describe everything that is not of God and his goodness and purpose. So if the bullseye is God's goodness and purposes for us, we have all missed it in some way. And at this moment of shame and heartbreak, the world is now infected, humans, animals, and all creation, infected with this unquenchable desire for things that are not God's goodness. And I say unquenchable because it does not matter how many times we turn to those fruits, they do not satisfy. So on the one hand, we carry this curse. And on the other, we carry some sense still. We're still holding on to this sense of God's goodness that we were created with too. And so now all of creation carries the weight of that tension, the curse of sin and the goodness of God. Is this going to be about God's goodness or my goodness? Is this going to be about what God told me or what I can reach? I mean, how did sin enter the world. It entered the world by humans reaching to define good and evil for themselves. Sin entered the world through humans reaching to define good and evil for themselves. This is the Bible's explanation for a good creation turned against itself, and we see evidence for it every day. This is the story that every human being lives out. We reach to define good and evil for ourselves. And I don't just mean deciding for ourselves, I mean defining, because decisions about what is good and bad need to happen all the time. Like we're faced with a choice, we're faced with a temptation, we're faced with some options, and and we say, okay, is this good? Is this evil? Is is this going to be bad, good, whatever? But our decisions are actually based on our definitions. And our definition of what is good is based on what will feel good. What we think we deserve or we've earned, what will benefit us. And so my justification for buying the candy bar I do not need for so many reasons is the same as my justification for my lust, for my anger, for my gossip. Does it feel good to do it? Do I feel like I can justify that I deserve it or have earned it in some way? And then I bring that vision to my faith. And I expect God to operate with the same definition of goodness that I have. We go to God and expect that he will define goodness the same way we do. And we each say, well, does it feel good for me? That's a good definition of good. And we want God to be good by our definition. So here is, I think, a harder question about God's character. Is God loving Because now we move from general characteristic, goodness, to a personal one, love. 
And some of this, I understand, depends on our definition of love, and that's next week. So I'm not sure we can fully answer this today, but we can ask, is God wise enough and present enough and loving enough to know what is good for me? Y'all, this is the question that is going to be sitting behind every topic and question we talk about in this series. And I know it doesn't feel like it is obvious and upfront, but it's lurking in the background of all of it. Even the topic that people keep asking me, hey, are we going to talk about this? Yes, yes, we are. And even that one, this question is hanging out in the background. Is God wise enough? and present enough and loving enough to know what is good for me? Is God's goodness and love something I can trust? Is God's goodness and love something that I could actually depend on? Because this is the question, really, when we run into hurt, in this moment, when everything around me feels broken, when the whole thing just feels dumb, when it doesn't make any sense to me, when this can't be right, it's not supposed to be this way, in that moment is God's goodness and love something I can trust. Because if this is a Greco-Roman God with whims of lust and destruction, I can't trust him to be good or on my side. If this is a black and white God of, of pure justice but no compassion or love, I'm toast, and so are you. But if we can trust God to be consistently, eternally loving and good, we can trust him to have our good at heart. We can trust him to know and to give and to be the good that we need. And in the end, we can trust him to define good for us, even if it doesn't feel good to us. Now, at this point, I want to give a really important caveat. I am not saying that God gives us these painful, horrible things and calls it good. I am saying that God is not unaware that the world is broken. He's not unaware that you are hurting. He knows. I'm saying that God loves you even when the broken things hurt you. I think we do a disservice to our kids. And, and I know why, because we want them to feel safe and secure, but I think we do a disservice to our kids when we tell them that if they'll just trust Jesus, God will protect them and bad things won't happen to them. Because it's not true. Some of you have trusted Jesus and 
been hurt by brokenness so dark, we don't even talk about it in polite society because words like rape and child molestation just aren't things that we want to face. They make us too uncomfortable and it's hard to stare the brokenness of the world in the face and some of you didn't have a choice. And many of us, for different reasons in different ways, are still trying to pick up the pieces of the breaking that someone else's brokenness did to us. That doesn't even get into what I, I think is maybe the most powerful analogy for, if not evidence of, the curse of sin in this world, and that's cancer. That by definition is sickness moving into life-giving building blocks and wreaking havoc. And that is the curse of sin. <laughs> it is it is sickness moving into life-giving building blocks and wreaking havoc in our world. So two more questions. Is God powerful? Because we could get off the train here. Even if we answered all those other questions, yes. This could be one conclusion that bad things happen because a loving God just doesn't have the power to stop them. We could stop praying. We could stop being in awe. We could conclude that a God who formed the stars and set planets spinning is just not powerful enough to stop the evil happening in our world. But if God really did create, and we answered that question, yes, that seems like a whole lot of power to me. So if God has power, why do we still get hurt? And I don't have any easy, I'm not even sure I have satisfactory answers for you. But I can join you in asking hard questions. Is God good? Is God loving? Or this one. Does God have a plan? Does God have a plan? And I don't mean the answer of, yep, God has a plan for everything. I mean, what is a good creator going to do when their perfect and good creation that they love is shattered? What would a potter do if her, her clay jar was fractured? She would do whatever is within her power to make it right and whole again. What would a good creator do in a fractured world? Did they do whatever was within their power to make it right and new and whole again. And that is exactly what God did through Jesus. As Gwen talked about last week, when Adam and, which by the way, if you've not listened to last week, you totally should go back on our podcast and listen to that. As Gwen talked about last week, when Adam and Eve chose to determine good and evil for themselves, God immediately promised there would be someone coming who would crush the head of evil. That's at the beginning. At the end of scripture, we read this. This is Revelation 21, 
verse 5. And the one sitting on the throne, this is the resurrected Jesus, the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, a way has been made for all things to be made new in the end. The holiness of heaven came to earth and put on our fragility and walked around in our brokenness. Not to experience the hurt of brokenness. God already knew the pain of this curse and the hurt that it does to someone who loves. He'd experienced that already. No, this was so that we might know that our God identifies with our hurt. Jesus experienced fear and grief and anger and pain. He was murdered with nails tearing through his skin and a crown of thorns digging into his head. And any thorny issue that we deal with, those of us who are following Jesus with our lives, any thorny issue we deal with in our life, we submit to the thorny crown of Christ. Everything falls under his kingship, his goodness, his love, because he died to break the curse of sin. And then God raised him from the dead, the firstborn of a new creation, the first son of a forever family, the king who sits on the throne and says, look, I'm making everything new. The one who has promised that he is coming back one day to make it all whole again. I would submit to you that the Christian story is actually the most logical conclusion, the most logical outcome of a God who is good and loving. That in God's goodness and love, the one who created a good world and was heartbroken when it was broken, that God would make a plan That more than the Muslim or Mormon story where we have to earn God's attention, more than the Buddhist belief that we have to become one with the goodness of the universe despite being infected with this disease of sin in all creation, that God would, would make a way in love and goodness to make all things new and right again. But it is the meantime that's the problem, right? Okay, sure, God's going to make things, all, all things new and good in the end. But it's in the meantime that our questions come in. Why is God allowing the brokenness to continue if he has a plan to make it all right? The Bible says that God is not delaying, he's being patient. I'm not feeling very patient. Like Jesus, come now. Why is there still brokenness? Why are we still being hurt? 
This is my most unsatisfactory answer all day and maybe the whole series. I don't know. I don't know. And anytime I run into an I don't know, I go back to what I do know. Is there a God? Is God the creator? Is God good? Is God loving? Is God powerful? Yeah. I mentioned John 16.33 earlier. Uh, let's actually uh, turn there together, and then I'm, I'm almost done, I promise. John 16.33. Jesus talking to his disciples says, I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. What if victory in Jesus, or sorry, what if victory in this world doesn't look like the absence of pain, but the presence of Jesus? What if the promise of God is not that we will all escape the pain of brokenness, but that he will walk through it with us? What if the purpose of this life is not to feel good, but to experience peace in the midst of chaos? Because beauty is most profound in contrast. What if we actually bond with this good and loving God through enduring life with him? What if endurance really does bring joy? What if the purpose of this life is not to feel good, but to feel the powerful contrast of joy and grief in any given moment? What if the very freedom of choice that lets us choose brokenness and hurting others also lets us choose a more profound love? What if God really is good and really is loving and really is powerful? And what if the brokenness we feel and experience brings that truth into sharp relief? Because the darkness of this world feels so overwhelming. But light shines brightest in the deepest darkness. What if the light of the world doesn't shine from a crown of glittering jewels, but from a crown of thorns? What if what Jesus' friend John said is really true? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Look, Jesus says, I am making all things new. The broken will be made whole, and I will walk there with you every step, 
with endurance and joy and a light in the darkness. He goes with us. So let's go to him in prayer and worship. Father God, we believe that you are good in a world that feels very not good some days. We believe and we remember this morning that you have made a way to be in your presence, to experience your goodness. Father, our hurt, can be a tool of our enemies to drive us away from from you, from what is true, from our experience of goodness. Where else will we go, Peter said? You have the words of life. So we, we come to you. Would you comfort us in the brokenness Sit with us in our doubts. Thank you for welcoming us in with our questions, our hurts, our wondering. To be in your presence, to be in your light, to experience your love and goodness and power. We come to you in Jesus' name. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.